Load. Okay. So uh, it's been a few weeks. I think we just said three weeks uh, since we last uh, met for this uh, this class because we had Yantif and I was out of town and whatnot. So we are on the topic of divine omniscience and divine providence. So when we left off a few weeks ago, the specific, the first issue that we were discussing, uh, having to do with uh, uh, divine uh, omniscience, and we were struggling to understand how it's possible that we could say that God has uh, knowledge of everything. God knows everything which, uh, which happens, which exists, and yet still allow for our free choice, for our Bechira Chavshis. Seemingly, if God knows everything already, so that means I can't really choose freely because I can't choose against what God already knows to, uh, to be true or, or will occur. On the other hand, if you say that, I do, that we do have free choice, then how are we going to reconcile the fact that God doesn't know what's going to happen until it actually happens? It sort of puts God in the, uh, in the, uh, uh, in the time frame, in the continuum of time. So when we left off, what we had suggested was that although God knows exactly what's going to happen, so God's knowledge of, in a sense, the future, or God's knowledge of what's, uh, what happens in this world, exists in this world, is something which is absolute. It doesn't in any way impact our free choice, because our free choice, God's knowledge of that exists outside of time. And our uh, perception of free choice is something which exists within the, uh, within the, uh, the timeline. And since we exist within the timeline, so that's when uh, that's how our choice is able to exist. So the reconciliation of these two, uh, these two ideas uh, is, is the result of the difference between God's existence outside of the timeline and our existence within the timeline. And this is an idea that, uh, that Reb Tzadok actually develops. Reb Tzadok talks about um, how it is that the Mitzrim, that the Egyptians could be punished for how they treated the Jews when the Jews were enslaved in Mitzrayim. Because the question seemingly is that, not seemingly, the question is that God already foretold of the fact that the Jews would be enslaved to Avram Avinu, and that was a good three, four hundred years before the slavery actually began. So this is, if this is something which God knew about in advance, so all the Mitzrim were doing, all the Egyptians were actually doing, was fulfilling the divine will that the Jews would be, uh, would be enslaved. So how could the Egyptians be punished for having fulfilled the, uh, the, the will of God? So the Rambam explains that he has an interesting approach. He says that God never said, that the Egyptians would be the ones who would enslave the Jews. He just said the Jews would be slaves. And the truth be told, according to the Rambam, had the Egyptians not stepped into that role to enslave the Jewish people, then another nation would have stepped into that role and would have gone ahead and enslaved the Jewish people. And therefore, the punishment that was due to the Egyptians was by virtue of the fact that they made the decision to go ahead and enslave the Jews, and therefore they were punished for volunteering to do something to enslave the Jewish people, which is not something which they had to do. That's the way the Rambam understands why the, uh, the Egyptians were punished for enslaving the Jewish people. The Raiva disagrees and says that he, he, uh, he rejects this notion that the Egyptians could have chosen to not enslave the Jews. And he says the reason why the Egyptians were punished, even though it was divinely ordained that they would enslave the Jewish people, is because 
the God's uh, decision that the Egyptians would uh, enslave the Jewish people involved X amount of suffering that the Jews would have to endure. The Egyptians went ahead and they decided that they were going to behave mahadrin mina mahadrin. They're not just going to enslave and torture the Jews at X amount of suffering. What they're going to do is they're going to go ahead and they're going to magnify it to 10X or to 100X. And since they went ahead and decided that they're going to inflict more suffering than was divinely ordained. So that was the source, according to the Ravid, that was the, source, that was the reason why they deserve to be, uh, to be punished. Reb Tzadok rejects both of those opinions. I don't know if he would say rejects, but Reb Tzadok offers an alternative uh, approach to that. And he says that in reality, not only did God know that it was going to be the Egyptians which would enslave the Jewish people as opposed to any other nation, and he also know, know, knew exactly how much suffering the Jews were going to have to endure during the period of time that they were enslaved by the, uh, the Egyptians. So then, what was the? So why should they be punished? This get, brings us back to our original question: Why were the Egyptians punished if all of this was divinely ordained? So Reb Tzadok says the reason that why they were punished is because of their attitude. In other words, that since they made the conscious decision to oppress the Jewish people, so their attitude that they did not have in mind when they enslaved the Jewish people and oppressed them and tortured them and killed them, that they were doing so in fulfillment of the divine decree. They were doing so because they felt that they were superior to the Jewish people, and the Jewish people are an inferior people who deserve to be, uh, to be, uh, to be enslaved. So therefore, this, uh, so since they made the decision, their attitude was not to fulfill the divine will of God, but to go ahead and do so out of their own uh, interest. So it was for that reason that they were, uh, that they were punished. Because nothing happens, according to Reb Tzadok, in the, the Hasidic approach, nothing happens in the world without it being predetermined. But all we get to do is the only thing which we control in this uh, big uh, picture or in the equation of events unfolding in the world is all we input is our attitude. And that, Reb Sadok explains, is the whole basis of, of tshuva. Uh, if you think about it philosophically, the concept of tshuva is a very difficult concept to understand because once something has already been done, once an event is already in the past, so how is tshuva, how is repentance going to go ahead and undo that event which has already occurred? It's impossible to undo the past. Tshuva can't go uh, send you backwards in time. It's not like a... Uh, um, uh, uh, back to the future type of thing. They could actually go back in time and you, you could rewrite history. So how exactly does tshuva work? So Reb Sadok says that it's true that you can't actually go back in time and undo the sin which was committed. But what you can do is, is you could go to the attitude or the thinking process which led you to sin in the first place and by addressing that attitude which led you to sin in the first place. So that's how we go ahead and we do tshuva, by uprooting that inclination, not the inclination, but uh, uprooting those uh, uh, elements which led me to sin in the first place, those desires which I had in the first place which led me to sin. And by addressing those and repairing those and repenting for that attitude, so that's how I go ahead and I do tshuva, and that's how I... Uh, I'm able to, that's what, that's what tshuva is going to be able to, uh, to, uh, to accomplish. And therefore, 
tshuva, in a sense, is a, it, uh, uh, distinguishes, cuts a line between the action which was done and the thinking process which led you to that action in the first place. And tshuva is not going to be able to repair the event which was done, the, the specific crime which was committed, but it does address the attitude which, was a, which, uh, which led to that action in the first place. And this is the issue, this is the point that Reb Sarok is, is, is uh, raising over here, is pointing out that our free choice only has to do with not so much whether things are going to happen or not, but it has to do with the action that we, the, the attitude or the thinking that we bring to the table when we go ahead and we do that, uh, that, that action. And uh, in case uh, somebody will say that, listen, uh, that's a very Hasidic approach. And uh, I'm not so, uh, so down with that Hasidic approach to, uh, to things. I'm not always so, uh, so comfortable with that. So I could tell you that the altar of Kelm, one of the, uh, the leaders of the Muslim movement, so he actually presents a very similar idea. And he says, he, he, he notes that everything which exists in the universe exists for one purpose, and that is to give glory to God, to give kavod shamayim. That's, that's the only reason anything exists in the, in, in the entire universe is kavod shamayim, is to give honor to God. Now, commonly, when we think about that, so what we think is, is that if you have a person who's a tzaddik, or you have a person who's at Sadekis, and they are doing the will of God, so the mitzvahs which they do, so they bring kvod shemaim, they bring honor and glory to, uh, to Hashem's existence. And when you have a Russia who does not fulfill uh, God's will, and seemingly they, uh, they sin and they violate the word, the, uh, the word of God, the, the, uh, the mitzvahs of Hashem, so they cause Hashem's presence to be concealed in the world. So seemingly not everybody's behavior is going to generate, kavod shemaim is going to generate honor for Hashem. But the altar of Kelm says that this actually is not the case. This is a mistaken perception on our part, and everything only brings kavod shemaim. So what's if everything brings kavod shemaim? So what's the difference between a tzaddik and a rasha? So the only difference between a tzaddik and a rasha is a tzaddik's behavior is intended to bring kavod shemaim, whereas the Russia's behavior isn't intended to bring kavod shemaim, even though kavod shemaim is going to occur anyways. In other words, they at uh, God says it's like uh, when you take your kids on vacation. We're going to have a good time, whether you enjoy yourself or not. So we're, we're going on this vacation. It's going to be you're going to have fun, and it's your choice whether or not you're actually going to acknowledge that you're having fun and enjoying yourself. Or is it something that you that you are going to uh, uh, experience kicking and screaming? But the end result is going to be the same anyways. We're going on vacation. We're going to have a a, a good time. So he gives as an example. The altar of Kelm gives a similar example to what we've been discussing, and that was that Paro was already told by his astrologers that the Jewish people are going to have a savior who's going to be born. That's why Paro decided he's going to throw all of the, uh, the boys into the river. He's going to kill all of the boys because he was trying to avoid what the astrologers told him was going to take place. And that savior is going to take the Jewish people out of Mitzrayim. So now, at that point, Paro has two choices. He could either join the team and he could say, yes, a, a savior is going to be born and he's going to take the Jewish people out of Mitzrayim and I will help through that process. Or Paro could do his best to thwart that process, to deny that such a thing is going to take place. 
But ultimately, it's going to happen anyways. Whether he agrees, he's on board willingly, or whether he is the Jewish people are going to leave kicking and screaming, uh, that's his choice. Whether he's going to be happy about it or he's going to be kicking or screaming. But ultimately, it's going to happen anyways. And as we know, the biggest joke of all uh, on Paro was the fact that he was the one who raised the person who would be the savior of the Jewish people. So here he is trying to do his best to make sure that the Savior would not be able to accomplish that task and take the Jews out of slavery. And Power himself ended up, through all of his tuition dollars and whatnot, and all of the money he spent on clothing and food and raising this, uh, this grandson of his with the, uh, the, uh, the best of, uh, of childhood, the best that money could, uh, could buy, he ended up being the one who gave the initial training to Moshe Rabbeinu to be a leader who would then take the Jewish people out of Mitzrayim. So here we see the altar of Kalm says that it was predetermined that Paro was going to be the one who's going to let the Jewish people out of Mitzrayim. And not only that, but he would assist in the process by helping train Moshe Rabbeinu. And the reason why Paro ultimately was punished for that is because of his attitude. His attitude was, no, 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 I will not let them go. And all along, it was going to be, yes, 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 yes. You are going to be the one who's going to let them go. So the only thing which Paro uh, controlled in the process was his attitude. And being that his attitude was to not allow the Jewish people to go, that's why he was punished. But ultimately, all of the events which needed to take place, all of them unfolded exactly as divinely ordained, uh, divinely ordained. And reward and punishment is going to be a function of the attitude which we bring to the table, either to intentionally bring Kavod Shemayim or Kvot Shemaim is going to take place despite the fact that we are screaming and yelling. Now, there is one more um, point, um, which uh, we have to go ahead and we have to um, uh, finish off before we move on to the second part. Remember, if you remember from three weeks ago, we said there's two parts to this principle. One has to do with... uh, uh, divine omniscience, God's knowledge of everything, and how that's going to interact with our free will, whether it's a contradiction to our free will or not. And the second point was hashkacha pratis, which is divine providence. And that will uh, that will be the uh, the next topic. But one last thing which we need to go ahead and touch upon when we deal with uh, God's uh, omniscience. And that is that... Um, the, the, uh, as we've been de- developing, God has perfect knowledge of what's going to happen, yet God's perfect knowledge of what's going to happen in terms of being from the perspective that he's outside of the timeline, that in no way uh, inhibits or impacts our perception of free will, which exists from, uh, from where we, uh, from our position in, within the timeline, and they don't uh, they don't uh, o- overlap at all. And this we can understand, we can develop a little bit more with the, uh, with the, uh, uh, from the perspective of Tzimtzum. Tzimtzum, if you remember, we talked about how God's spiritual uh, essence, whatever exactly that's going to be, but his essence is so powerful and so potent that it's impossible for the physical world to exist if one was too close to the, uh, the, uh, the concentrated presence of, of God. So it's like being too close to the sun. If you get too close to the sun, you're going to be burnt up. 
So in order for our, our earth to exist, in order for people to be able to thrive, for plants to be able to live, and for animals to be able to live, so we have to be that perfect distance from Hashem. So in the same way, we can't be too close in proximity to Hashem's spiritual essence, and therefore he created a series of worlds in which progressively there's less and less concentration of God's existence in more and more of physical existence till you get to, uh, to our world over here. Now, uh, for that reason, we've said that uh, uh, one of the, uh, the part of the way that we describe the stages in between God himself and the physical world in which we find ourselves is that God created attributes. Hashem, Hashem, Kelrachum, Bechanun, the 13 attributes of mercy are examples of that, which God put in place, which sort of bridge the gap and allow us to be able to perceive God from a perspective particular perspective for us to be able to process and be able to uh, connect with God in terms of from the perspective of his these attributes, even though the attributes themselves don't actually capture God's essence. So uh, in the same way that we say that God isn't really angry or God isn't really happy or any of the emotions that we assign to God are not really descriptions of God himself, but they are our, our current perception of what's going on with God at this moment, that the, the use of the attributes is sort of anthropomorphic to give us a way to be able to relate to God. So in the same way that the, the timeline in which we exist, when we hear about God getting angry and punishing the Jewish people, like we would read about in the Tochacha, or God, uh, uh, that we actually walk with God, and then we become privileged to be able to get God's blessings. The truth is, is that none of that is actually happening. It's, we're we not impacting God or changing God as a result of our behavior. But what God structured, what God put in place is that we as humans, he wants to make sure that we relate to God, and that we feel that we have a meaningful relationship with him. And one of the most important elements of relating to another person is to know that what you do is impactful. If you go ahead and, uh, you know, if you've ever tried, I don't know if you, any of you have had that experience, but if you ever try, uh, you know, giving a class on Zoom where everybody has their cameras off. So when everybody has their cameras off, you have no idea if anybody's there, if anybody's listening, if anybody cares what's going on. You're just sort of speaking to it. <laughs> exactly. You're speaking to a, a blank screen of, uh, of people and you're hoping that somebody's listening, but Lav Dafka, do you know that anybody's actually uh, listening to, uh, to, to what's going on? So uh, our, our minds are wired to go ahead and to make sure that we are going to be able to connect and that we are impactful. So God goes in and he's structured between himself and where we are. He put, structured all these different layers, which give us the perception that when we do mitzvahs, God is happy, that when we do averas, God is unhappy and God gets angry. That lets us know, that communicates to us that God cares, that God is aware of what we are doing and that he cares about what we're doing. And knowing that we, in, in the perception that we have that we're impacting God is something which makes the relationship with God, the connection that we have with God, something which is real and meaningful. Because if it was just a matter of doing something and nobody really cares, and we're not getting any, imp we're not getting any input 
or, or any feedback from God, from our behavior. So there's only so long that a person is going to be able to continue doing something if there's going to be no feedback uh, uh, and, and no response whatsoever. So therefore, although God knows exactly what we're going to do because God exists outside of time, and you don't have events which are unfolding. Events unfolding is a timeline-related perspective, and God doesn't have that. Nonetheless, he gave us, he structured the universe in a way where it would be perceived on our end that what we're doing is impactful, meaningful to God, and he is responsive to what's, uh, what's going on. And that's what allows us to be able to have a relationship with him. And that is the, uh, the uh, specifically the... Uh, the, uh, the uh, um, the perspective which he wants us to, uh, to carry with us as we go through our daily lives, our weekly lives, and our monthly lives. Okay, so Ad Khan, part number one of this, uh, of this principle, having to do with divine omniscience, having to do with God's knowledge of what's going on and how that interacts with our free will. Now, the next part of this principle is divine providence, Hashkacha Pratis. Now, Hashkacha Pratis is a huge uh, philosophical uh, uh, issue, uh, which, uh, you know, from the beginning of time also, uh, once you accept the idea that there is a God, in whatever form that God is, uh, even if you take it outside of uh, Jewish philosophy, once you accept that there's a God, and that God is going to issue some sort of commandments, has some sort of expectations, so now the question is, how uh, intimate is God's relationship with mankind and the universe or is god did god sort of like you know, what always comes to mind for me is like a person spinning a basketball on their finger so god goes out and creates the universe gives it a big whirl the world is spinning around and it just sort of spins on its own he has like a perpetual motion machine or something like that and god just gave the uh you know uh, plugged in the uh, the universe the universe then functions and God is off, uh, you know, on a beach somewhere, on a sandy beach somewhere, enjoying the clear waters and the warm sun, and is not really paying attention to what's, uh, to what's, uh, to what's happening. So what exactly, how uh, interactive is God with the universe or not? And as you would expect, in Jewish philosophy, there are three different approaches, at least three different approaches uh, uh, for this matter, and it runs the... the uh, the spectrum of possibility, from all-encompassing, very little-encompassing, to somewhere in the uh, the middle over there, and we're going to go ahead and we'll present these three different ideas, not even trying to arrive at a conclusion as far as what exactly it makes more sense or not. This would be as far as this type of uh, of perception, this type of question of divine providence. So this is where. Um, I would remind you of my general approach to these types of things is, is that it doesn't really matter which way you are going to go or which one makes more sense uh, to, to you, but you should, uh, you should uh, adopt the perception of the one which uh, uh, motivates you the most, inspires you the most and motivates you the, uh, the most. So different people for a variety of reasons, uh, different approaches will resonate or not resonate with them. So hopefully of the three which we present, everybody will uh, find something which resonates with them. There's nine of us here, so maybe we could play tic-tac-toe and see if we could find three in a row on the screen of which ones are, uh, you know, get the, which one is going to be the, uh, the winner. I imagine it's sort of like bingo because everybody has a different, uh, different uh, structure of the nine where different, uh, different people are, but okay. So 
the, uh, the three extremes. So they're going to be, the Rambam is going to be one extreme. We'll call the Hasidic approach is going to be the other extreme. And then you'll have the Ramchal somewhere in the middle of that. Okay, so the Rambam's uh, uh, opinion, uh, and it, it sounds um, uh, elitist, and it very much is, uh, you know, it, it certainly is superficially, it's very much elitist. And the Rambam is of the opinion that God created the world for the great philosophers who are going to be able to perfect their mind and their thinking. Those are the ideal humans. Those are the people for whom the entire universe was, was created. The Rambam himself asked the question, that being that we look around the universe and we don't see that everybody is a great philosopher who's working very hard to go ahead and perfect their thinking and their attitude and stuff like that. So why are the rest of us created? So he said the rest of us are created for two reasons. Either to go ahead and to provide, somebody has to go ahead and build houses and manufacture clothing and food, and the philosophers are too busy philosophizing to go ahead and to take care of these mundane activities. So the rest of us are here to go ahead and uh, and to, uh, to, uh, to take care of those very mundane activities of manufacturing and whatnot. Or he says that the philosophers would get bored after a while. So they need other people to sort of like play with, right? If they just, uh, you know, play chess by themselves. So it wouldn't be as, uh, I guess, as much fun. So you need some of us uh, peons to go ahead and to be there to sort of uh, just uh, to be there for company uh, to the, uh, to the ph- philosophers. But we have a very subordinate role and our role is just to go ahead and address and to, uh, to somehow supplement the, the lives of the philosophers. Now, the, therefore, the Rambam says, as far as divine providence is concerned, as far as Hashgach Pratis is concerned, so number one is, he says, that it's the exclusive domain of mankind. God doesn't really pay attention to nature. We'll explain a little bit more about that in a moment. But God doesn't really care so much about nature. What he cares about is mankind. And the more the, an individual perfects his thinking and his philosophy and his mindset, so the more divine providence he becomes worthy of, the more Ashkacha Pratis he's, he's worthy of, God pays more attention to that person. And if a person drifts away from God, so what that means is that they're going to be... Uh, uh, receive less divine providence, God will pay less attention to what, the, what, what, what they do. So the better students are going to get more attention in class, and the uh, weaker students are going to get less attention. And that's a sliding scale, depending on where you are, you either get more or you get less. You could go, you could drift so far away from God that you actually deserve death. The Ramam uses Amalek as an example of that that philosophically they drifted so far away from God that God said there's nothing redeeming about them which remains, and therefore the only thing which, uh, which uh, is appropriate to do with them is just to go ahead and annihilate them because there's no redeeming qualities which, uh, which, which remain. Now, in theory, the Rambam does, should not differentiate between Jews and non-Jews because it all has to do with intellectual perfection. So the closer you get to intellectual perfection, the more divine providence, even for a non-Jew, and the, more, the less perfection or the more coarse a person's thinking is or the more mundane a person's thinking is, so the further they drift away from God and the less divine providence they have, also whether Jew or non-Jew. Now, theoretically, that, that, that's true. However, the Ram is of the opinion that in order to actually be able to achieve this intellectual perfection which we are, which we are striving for, 
or intellectual achievement that we are striving for, part of that is going to be that the Torah is going to be a guideline in order for a person to do that. So if you could align your thinking with the Torah, then you will almost by definition have a greater perfection of your thinking process as opposed to those who don't have Torah. So they're going to have a much harder time being able to uh, uh, perfect their thinking because they just don't have the tools or the background and the information necessary, the framework, let's say, the framework necessary to be able to achieve that perfection. So you could get it right, but it's much, it's, it's unlikely that's going to happen. But in theory, God doesn't, uh, doesn't take sides between Jew and non-Jew, and anybody who achieves that intellectual greatness will be worthy of Hashkacha Pratis, and those who do not uh, achieve that, so that'll be uh, too bad, so, uh, so sad for them. Now, in regards to nature, though, since nature is not going to achieve any sort of intellectual um, perfection or intellectual achievement whatsoever, so God doesn't get involved in nature. So nature pretty much runs itself, whether this lion is going to catch this gazelle or that gazelle or this deer or that deer, or the lion is going to go hungry for the night, God doesn't really care. He's not involved on that level of what happens in the, in the universe in terms of the physical things, those which are not humans. The only thing which God oversees when it comes to uh, nature is whether or not a species is going to go extinct. So whether an entire species will go extinct that's something that God will uh, does care about and does oversee. But in terms of you know all of the uh, the regular uh, great videos we get to see of nature of different uh, creatures attacking other creatures, in which ones are successful, in which ones are not. So God doesn't. Uh, that's not God's domain. That God pretty much put on autopilot and just lets it run by itself. That is the approach that the uh, the Rambam takes to this uh, to this idea. Now, he said the other extreme is going to be the Hasidic approach. The Hasidic approach says that absolutely everything, without exception, is under direct divine providence. God oversees everything which is happening everywhere in the universe, and every uh, uh, um, creature which exists, even as far as plants and trees are concerned, God has direct uh, providence over what is successfully growing in what is, uh, what, what is not. So not only are human beings being carefully watched and guarded by God, but even the, the animals and uh, plant life and even inanimate uh, uh, objects are also carefully watched by, uh, by God. In this, uh, the uh, Hasidim, they go ahead and they point to the, state, the statement that Chazal make that even a, uh, that a blade of grass uh, cannot grow unless there's a malach directly over that blade of grass instructing it to grow. And the, the, uh, the malach there is just an extension of the divine providence, meaning that there is spiritual awareness of everything which happens in this world. And even a blade of grass is not going to be able to grow successfully, is not going to be able to grow at all without a, uh, uh, some spiritual force which is instructing it to, to grow. And therefore everything without exception is under divine providence, and whether or not that uh, you know that spider which you have running along your ceiling, whether or not he's going to catch 
this mosquito or that mosquito or what exactly is going to be the uh, the uh, the result of that uh, that mosquito. You know, right right now, uh, I don't think in Illinois we have, too, or at least in Chicago area, we have too much of that. But the billions of cicadas, which now are now emerging out of the ground and are going to go ahead and make those uh, their their uh, their noise. So according to the Hasidic approach, every cicada is accounted for by God. And what that cicada is going to do, it's going to become a chocolate-covered cicada, or it's not going to become a chocolate-covered cicada, and who's going to eat that cicada? All of that is divinely ordained, and nothing happens without, uh, without God's uh, watchful eye. So these are the two extremes. The Rambam who says that there's very limited hashkacha pratis, only for people, and only those people who are in the process of developing their minds and perfecting their minds, Versus the Hasidim who say everything, including people and animals and plant life and inanimate objects, everything is in, under direct hashkacha pratis. Nothing is going to escape God's uh, watchful, uh, watchful eye. Now, the Ramchal goes ahead and he sort of has a middle of the road approach, which balances between the, uh, which balances between the two. And he says that really... It's going to be uh, the Jewish people, uh, the God's chosen people, those who agree to accept the Torah. So they are the ones ultimately who are going to be privy to divine providence. They are the ones who are going to be under God's watchful eye because by choosing to accept the Torah, the people, the Jewish people said, yes, we are going to be the ones who are tasked with the responsibility of bringing the world into its state of perfection without getting too much into the, uh, the history of what happened from creation until 2448 and how all of the events unfolded over time. But originally, Adam and Chava were supposed to bring the world into a state of perfection, and there was no, there, there, there was no matter of being Jewish or not for Adam and Chava. The concept didn't really exist. And even by Noach, when the God went ahead and did a soft return of the universe, didn't restart the entire universe, but a soft return in terms of restarting mankind in the animal kingdom, there also, there is not really a difference between Jew and non-Jew. There were mitzvahs which were given to B'nai Noach, and everybody in a sense was B'nai Noach at that point. It was with Avram Avinu and Sarah Imenu that suddenly God said, you know what, I don't think we're going to be able to go, uh, the whole class, I don't think the whole class is going to be able to, uh, to be able to, uh, to be, uh, you know, get the AP credit for this. I think we're going to have to go ahead and we're going to have to divide the class. And the division of the class, which began with Avram Avinu and Sarah Imenu, that led 400 years later to the Jewish people, or 500 years later from Avram Avinu's birth, but that led to the Jewish people. And now it's the Jewish people who have that responsibility to bring the world to its state of perfection. So the world as it exists now in, our, in its current state is divine providence is something which is the domain of the Jewish people, because the Jewish people have that responsibility to bring the world into its state of perfection. And the way that the God uh, uh, created the world uh, was that those people who are going to be tasked with bringing the world into its state of perfection, they have impact on the universe in general. So that's the way we perceive things. That's the way we see, like in Parshas Bechukosai and Parshas Kisavo, that if the Jewish people follow God's will, so then good things are going to happen. That in the second paragraph of Kriyashma, so we're told about good things which are going to happen in the event that we follow 
God's world. There'll be blessing in the, uh, the rain will fall in the correct time and there'll be plenty of food for us as well as the, the, the animals. But in the event that we don't follow the will of God, we disregard God's, uh, God's will, or we visit on occasion uh, whenever it's convenient for us, and when it's inconvenient, we go ahead and we turn elsewhere. So then that, that, uh, that attitude can have negative impact on nature. So what happens in nature is something which is that God doesn't decide things of nature by themselves. There's no independent uh, like CEO of nature. But what happens is, is that the behavior of the Jewish people is going to directly impact what's happening in nature. So we perceive, again, we can't attribute the, uh, what happens to specific things necessarily, but we perceive that our behavior collectively as the Jewish people, so we, we impact whether or not uh, there are going to be natural disasters in this world or there's not going to be natural disasters in, in, in the world. Uh, if I remember correctly, the Chavetz Chaim went ahead and decreed a fast day when he heard that the Mississippi River uh, flooded and killed a bunch of people. And back in the time of the Chavetz Chaim, at the beginning of the 20th century, nothing which was happening uh, along the Mississippi River had any real impact, direct impact seemingly, on what was happening to the Chavetz Chaim in his little shtetl there in Raden. And yet he saw that if there's a natural disaster which occurs in this world, it's somehow related to the behavior of the Jewish people. And when tragedy occurs, so the Jewish people have to take note and the Jewish people have to repent and they have to try and change things in some way. Again, we don't know exactly why, but they have to find some area of improvement uh, because any natural event which occurs is the result of the, uh, is, is an extension or is a consequence for what the Jewish people are, 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 are doing. And therefore, the, according to the Ramchal, divine providence as it interacts with nature is, is only indirect. It's a grama of sorts. It's indirect because really the main thing is the divine providence as it affects the Jewish people and how God responds to that from our perception of God's uh, response. So that is going to uh, occur because uh, nature is going to be a reflection of how the Jewish people are, uh, are, uh, are behaving. And there's, it's interesting, and this is how you know that a machlogis is actually... Uh, um, uh, uh, sort of like Emes Lamito, that all the opinions of the Machlogis are really an Elu Velu Divelukim Chaim, they're all expressing different aspects of God's will. Is that there's a story in Masecha Shavias which each one of these three approaches points to as proof that they're correct. So that's when it's really good that they could all point to the same Gemara and they could say, Aha, this is proof that my approach is correct. So what's that story which can be interpreted according to any one of these, uh, these opinions? So the Yerushalmi in Shvius talks about Reb Shum ben Yochai, who went uh, uh, in order to escape the Romans who were uh, looking for him, who wanted to go ahead and kill him. So Reb Shum ben Yochai, we know he hid in a cave for, a period of, for, a, for an extended period of time, 12 or 13 years or so, in order to avoid being captured by the, uh, the Romans and, uh, and executed. And uh, at the end of this period of time, so Shimon Yochai said, you know what, enough is enough in the cave. I'm, uh, it's time for me to, uh, to exit the cave and integrate back into society. And as he left the cave, he saw a bird enter into a hunter's trap. And then at the exact moment that uh, Shimon Yochai walks out of the cave and sees this bird walk into the hunter's trap, he hears a bascol go ahead and declare one word, 
dimus. Dal yud mem vav samach. Dimus means freedom. And immediately after the bird goes out and makes that, uh, sorry, the basco goes out and makes that declaration, dimus of freedom. So the bird flies away and was not, did not get stuck in that trap. So it was about to get stuck in that trap. A basco comes out and says freedom and the bird flies away. So now, what the, so Reb Shumar Yochai looks at that. He, he, he uh, 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 notes that this obviously is something, some sort of message for him, if, because this is the first thing that he sees immediately upon walking out of the cave. And he decides that if, the, if God is going to decide whether this particular bird is captured or not, then certainly when it comes to Reb Shumar Yochai himself, and the Romans, which are also trying to cap Rav Shimon Yochai, so certainly God is going to watch over Rav Shimon Yochai, and if it's destined that he's going to get captured by the Romans, that will happen no matter what, and if it's destined that he's not going to be captured by the Romans, then he doesn't have to hide in the cave, because they're not going to be able to go ahead and catch him anyways. So now, what are the three ways to go ahead and look at the story? And with this, we'll, we'll finish. So the Rambam says that this, is a, this, this divine providence is a message for Reb Shemar Yechai himself. Reb Shemar Yechai was one of those scholars who reached that intellectual perfection. He was one of the people who was on his way to be able to achieve the highest levels. And therefore, he was deserving of divine providence. So all of this unfolds. God didn't really care about the bird being captured or not. What God cared about was that Shimon Yochai should be able to get a message that God is going to watch over him and make sure that he is going to either be safe or not. But God is going to take a, a, but God is going to carefully watch over what happens with Shimon Yochai. And that was the message that Shimon Yochai was supposed to take. And nature was just a tool in God's hands to go ahead and send this message to Shimon Yochai. At the other uh, uh, end of the spectrum. So the Hasidic approach is, is that it wasn't just a random bird. It was a specific bird which was chosen by God, and it was specifically chosen for Shema Yochai, and everything, it was this particular hunter's trap, it was this particular bird, this species of bird, this bird within that species which was chosen to be the one which, which was there. And all of the details of that entire scene was uh, uh, ordained by God that they should all converge at the exact same moment, at the exact same time that Shemar Yochai is walking out of the cave, so that he should witness this uh, event. And every detail of that was carefully planned and orchestrated by, uh, by, uh, by God. The same way you're watching a, a, you know, a movie, everything which you see on the screen of that movie or a TV show, everything there was chosen to be there by somebody. Nothing is there randomly, and everything is there to convey is to create the scene which is taking place. In the Hasidim, go ahead and they see the story of all of that is was subject to specific divine providence. Every last uh, every last detail in there. The the Ramchal, the middle approach, he says he looks at the story and says that uh, obviously this is an indication that God's providence extends to the Jewish people in general and to the tzaddikim and the Jewish people specifically, that they're going to be worthy of a greater degree of divine providence. And therefore, the, uh, what happened in nature, meaning what happened to this bird and this trap and the fact that it walked in and was able to escape, that, was, that occurred only to send a message to Reb Shimon Yochai. Because Reb Shimon Yochai's righteousness made him worthy of having this event in nature take place, so that it would send him the appropriate message. 
and that he would realize that although God doesn't care so much about the uh, the birds for the birds, but nonetheless, it's something which uh, was uh, was a tool in God's hands in order to send the message to the one who needed to receive the message, which was Rabbi Shimon Yochai. So here we have this one story in the uh, in the Yushami, and both the Rambam as well as Hasidim as well as the Ramchal can find uh, support for their approach to divine providence from that from that exact same story. And that's what we got on uh, on that uh, that principle. Um, I would normally uh, uh, see what uh, people uh, have to say, but uh, I have to get.